everyone. Welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And today, we're talking about the importance of debates for at least two reasons. The first one is that the second installment of Debatable Open takes place this weekend. The Discord server for the tournament is open for observers, so feel free to drop by. We hope to see you there. The link is in our social media pages. The second reason is that this weekend, the Commission on Elections is going to have its first debate in their presidential and vice-presidential debate series. The debate is notable because the frontrunners, Bongbong Marcos, the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and Indai Sara Duterte, the daughter of the sitting president Rodrigo Duterte, are absent. They have emphasized not only the fact that they will not show up for any debate, but also the idea that debates aren't even required. So while it's technically true that attending presidential and vice-presidential debates is not required, the whole situation brought up a lot of questions like why are they doing this is this part of a strategy they have will it work and more importantly what even is the role of debate in a democracy so to help us answer these questions we invited an old friend oh hi everyone my name is miguel um i debated for up manila for four years between 2015 and 2019 Uh, currently i work as an analyst in an industry not entirely related to political science but I'm also currently pursuing research topics in populism and foreign policy. So a lot of that work comes with analyzing the public speeches of heads of state and heads of government. So I'd say that I'm really interested in how political actors speak to the public and what kind of messages they would like to emphasize and they would want the public uh, to hear. But even before I entered college, um, I was already pretty much interested uh, in elections, not only here in the Philippines but also in a lot of other countries uh, abroad. And in fact, I credit a lot of my political interest uh, beginning with the election of Barack Obama in the US in 2008, so my interest in electoral politics spans that far long ago. So it's been like 14, 15 years since uh, the 2008 election, and I'm just really very interested with electoral politics and what sways public opinion, what kind of messaging uh, is picked up more by the voters, and what issues matter to voters most in any given election. One of the important differences between competitive debate and these election debates is the notion of a winner. In competitive debating, there's a judge who says this person or this team won the debate. For these election debates, nobody says that officially, right? The closest we have are political analysts who say who they feel won the debate. That's the first question here. From the perspective of these analysts, What makes a candidate win a debate? To simply put it, I think there are two things that makes candidates win debates. First is message discipline. And by message discipline, I mean all of your answers, all of the platforms that you try to speak of in the debate that lasts an hour and a half or two hours. It has to always tie back to the theme, the main message of your entire campaign. So what does that mean? So... All of your platforms must jive with what kind of candidacy you're trying to run. So if you're a candidate trying to run as a change candidate, uh, your answers, your platforms that you try to present there, they shouldn't be reflective or they shouldn't uh, appear as if you seem like you're just doing the same old uh, policies or the same old things that people might have already perceived as having failed before. So um, in the U.S., that, that was the kind of message dis- discipline that uh, Obama uh, was very, very great in when he first ran for president in 2008. So it always came back to this idea of a change that the ordinary American could believe in. And with all of his policy priorities, with healthcare at the time, uh, with the impending recession that was already happening in that time uh, a lot of his platforms a lot of the answers that he gave during the three presidential debates in the 2008 election it showed 
that he was keen in being the change candidate and that kind of message discipline made him very appealing to a lot of these voters a lot of the undecided american voters at the time and he won the election but the second thing that makes a candidate win a debate and i think is something that will become really subjective it will be different from voter to voter is the appeal of that certain candidate to the people to the audience like i think a lot of candidates need to have a certain level of stage presence or else they will not look quote unquote presidential because if you don't have stage presence if you don't have that kind of uh, stature if you're going to suffer from stage fright or if you're stuttering through every answer uh, because of sheer nervousness you're not going to have that level of integrity that people will perceive as presidential and you will not look like as someone who has the character to become the president so a lot of these policy proposals yes they're going to be important but if you're going to just stammer through all of these proposals if you're not going to have message discipline if you're not very disciplined enough in the way that you give out your answers in relation to what kind of themes you're running your campaign on uh, e- even if you have the great policy ideas it's gonna be hard for you to stand out in a debate and win. The idea of message discipline is quite interesting to me because it can be what policies you can have or what narrative you're forwarding, what story you're selling, stuff like that. So what campaign messages stand out for you and the candidates and how do they tie their answers in previous debates to that message? Um, I'll start with Senator Lacson because his core message was really evident with the Boy Abunda interview in particular because he had hammered on this idea that all of the problems in the country uh, tied back to graft and corruption. And I think he repeated the phrase graft and corruption several times throughout that entire interview. So it's very evident that that is the core message and the core issue that he wants to tackle and the core issue that he wants to highlight uh, during the campaign. And also related to him is his running mate, Sen- uh, Senate President Soto, who presents the idea that him and Senator Lacson were the performers, sort of most performing senators in the last two congresses um if you've listened to the vice presidential debate uh, in cnn he kept on pointing out that they filed so-and-so bills or that they sponsored certain pieces of legislation that became laws in the current congress so I think those were the two main issues and the two main messages that the Lacson Soto tandem is trying to highlight and that's their selling point that we are top performers and we are going to defeat graft and corruption once we are elected as president and vice president. And then of course you have Mayor Moreno who is presenting the idea that his experience as Manila mayor and all of the changes he was able to make in Manila uh, serves as sort of this prototype or a proof of concept for his leadership in the national level. Of course, some have seen this as analogous to Duterte's messaging in 2016. Some have said this might backfire, but there might be room for such messaging, considering that the president still enjoys considerable popularity. So there could be uh, a room for that message uh, to shine. It will depend on how he tries to emphasize his experience and how he plans to scale that on the national level. Um, and then you, of course, have Senator Pacquiao, who I have I haven't listened to a lot of his uh, speeches, and I, I haven't really seen or heard a lot of what the campaign messaging is supposed to be, what the core message is supposed to be. But if I were to guess from some of the speeches that I've been able to hear or some of the sound bites I've been able to hear, it seems that his goal is to uh, present himself as a leader with a heart, especially for the poor. And that's why he sometimes banks on his anecdotes as a poor boy having to live on the streets, being homeless, and his parents uh, having to essentially uh, take care of their children uh, day by day, you know, trying to feed them, trying to take care of them day by day. So I think those are the experiences that he's trying to bank on. And then there's the vice president, Lenny Robredo, who is, of course, we all know the, her slogan because we've heard it many times. The gobyernong tapat ang at buhay lahat or uh, uh, if translated to English would mean 
uh, honest government, everyone's life will improve. So, how does she tie back to that messaging? She always lists out her achievements uh, in the office of the vice president and we've known uh, for quite a while that that's what she's always um, presenting as proof of concept for this sort of honest governance. Um, in fact, in the CNN debate, presidential debate, there was this viral soundbite where with the multitude apparently of her achievements, she sort of wrapped her way through the 90 seconds of pandemic response achievements because it was that many that she had to list down. So, so, so that's what she's banking on. That's what she's trying to prove as a new kind of governance, an honest governance, an honest leadership. And you know, there's the other candidates such as Kalyodi who is presenting an alternative uh, face to government. That's why his tagline is Mangagawa Naman or letting laborers uh, lead because that's what he's trying to present that uh, let's now we've now seen uh, how traditional politicians lead the country so now let's give a chance to uh, uh, someone who has been a worker, who has worked odd jobs in his life and that kind of experience is what he's going to bank on in crafting the policies so that uh, apparently, he will be having or instituting more labor or worker-friendly policies. So, um, a lot of policy choices seem to be labor-friendly and not so friendly with the wealthy, such as the wealth tax, which he always emphasizes and his running mate, uh, also uh, Representative Bellio, is also emphasizing. So, with all of the core messaging, the challenge is always to tie it back to what kind of policies they want uh, to enact or what they've done previously uh, already. So with message discipline, the challenge constantly is always to try to tie back with what your candidacy really means uh, and what your candidacy really stands for. And if the electorate sees that you are flip-flopping even just the slightest bit, then you might be seen as someone who's not credible or who's just pandering to the majority to just try to get the most number uh, of votes. It could succeed, but at the same time, you also run the risk of being seen as someone with less and less integrity every time you stray or you, you change your core messaging every time. There's this idea going around that all of that wasn't really important because most ordinary Filipinos, and we can generalize this to other countries as well, I feel, um, they don't really care about debates. What are your thoughts on that? Is it true or is there some sort of added nuance to that? I don't think there's a problem about ordinary Filipinos not caring about the debates. I mean, if we look at the audience share data in 2016, the debates were widely watched. Uh, the GMA debate, I think, a 30% share, and then the ABS-CBN debate, a 40% share. So there wasn't a problem with reach and audience participation uh, for those debates. And I think in 2022, the Jessica Soho interviews was in the top five most watched programs of the entire week, uh, that last week of January, I think. So a lot of people do watch these debates. I think there is a misconception about Filipinos not caring the debates. I think that's a mischaracterization. I think a lot of voters tune in to the debate and aren't undecided. So they are already are leaning towards or are already pledged to support one candidate or another. So it's not that they aren't interested enough in uh, the debate, I think it's more of the debate uh, and its ability to dissuade voters from voting one camp and making them vote for another camp uh, will be greatly reduced if your core audience who participates or tunes in to the debate are already those who have already made up their minds. So there's something to be said on the ability of the debate to swing public opinion, but I think we aren't giving enough credit to the average Filipino voter if we're just going to just say that uh, the ordinary Filipino doesn't care about the debate. I think they do. I think they watch the debate, they tune in, but they aren't there to make up their decision. They're there, they watch the debate so that they can support the candidate who they're already supporting prior to the debate. I think 
a lot of Filipinos have already made their decisions to who they're voting for. And um, I think the SWS survey already shows that a sizable amount, a sizable chunk of the voting electorate, they've already made their decision. So there's something to be said about the ability of the debates to swing public opinion. So it's not that they don't care, really. I don't think uh, it's a caring problem. I think it's more of a who is the undecided voter and how are you going to make them watch the debate and make them uh, vote for one candidate or the next. So that's the challenge for the campaign teams. That's the challenge for the candidates. That seems kind of contrary to our idea of what debating is, which is it's all about how to be persuasive. Now, it kind of looks like just a contest to see who can show support the loudest or which candidates can make the most viral zingers. So what is the root of that problem? I, I do actually think that, that that might be problematic. So what is the root of that problem? Is it the format of the debates? Is it because the format is bad or the questions are bad? Or is there a more cultural explanation for it? And if there are those explanations, how can we really change it? Um, for this election, I, I think it's still too early to tell that the debates will have absolutely zero uh, effect. Uh, we're barely two months out from the election, uh, but currently surveys aren't indicating much of a movement post the initial Jessica Soho, Boyabunda interviews and the DZRH interviews. Probably because, again, a lot of people might have already decided who they're going to vote for. And again, with the culture, with the political culture being uh, so polarized, there might be a little less room of movement, of jumping ship from one candidate to another. But we'll see if the debates will have any effect. Uh, by election day. I guess now it's time to address the big elephant in the room, which is BBM and Sara Duterte's chronic avoidance of debates. It looks like everyone, including BBM's own sister, Amy Marcos, is saying, hey, you should go and attend the debates. And yet, I don't think there's any signs that they're changing their minds on not going. Why are they doing this? Like, is it part of a political strategy? And if it is, do you think it's working? I can't speak for the Marcos campaign. No. Um, of course, in a perfect world, um, all 10 presidential candidates and all 9 vice presidential candidates will be uh, or should be on that stage in the common sponsor debate. So, um, But that isn't the case. I think just recently, Sara Duterte has already said that she's not participating in any of the Comelec sponsor debates um, and that she's choosing instead to campaign face-to-face with voters and we will find out on election day if um, that is a gamble that will pay off for both Marcos and Duterte but I think a lot of it if I were to make a judgment uh, about the campaign strategy of Marcos I think a lot of it comes from their assessment that the 2016 vice presidential debate is what caused BBM the vice presidency Um, I don't know if that's a fair assumption to make because the debate wasn't really the only thing that caused changes in the makeup of uh, the vice presidential voting preference. Uh, A lot could be said about soft voters for Cheese Escudero back then and then just jumped to Lenny Robredo because it looked like she was the one who would most likely defeat Marcos in the vice presidency. That may have changed with or without the vice presidential debate. But they are making a bet, the Marcos camp rather, making or is making a bet that they're not going to risk another um, downtrend that is going to be partly caused by a debate performance. So that's why they're not showing up yet. They haven't confirmed for the comic debate. That's why he shun off uh, Jessica Soho for her interview and it seems like you know they're carefully choosing what kind of platforms and which anchors are they going to let interview uh, the candidate because they don't want a gotcha question again about martial law they don't want another gotcha question about the ill-gotten wealth because they think every time that he is being given one of those questions um, it will be to the detriment of their 
campaign. So we will know on election day if that is a strategy that will be effective. If he wins, then maybe it was effective. But if he doesn't win, then sorry, there's no redos in the same presidential campaign. Um, This is a calculated risk that they are taking. And if it's a political strategy that's going to work, uh, everyone will find out at the same time. About BBM not wanting gotcha questions, some people who support BBM actually do say that it's not a, a requirement anyway. Um, cheetahs don't need to use its speed to prove it's faster than dogs. Um, and even Sarah Duterte herself was saying something like that. Not the cheetah thing, but I don't have anything to prove to you. She was saying that I don't need to go to a debate because I am very successful in Davao. So the implication there is I don't need to prove myself anymore. The thing that I need to do right now is to talk to people directly. Well, they don't really talk to people directly through caravans and stuff, right? They appear personally before people. And that's, I think, the difference that they want to have. But as you said, people generally care about debates. So the question now is, do people feel like it should be a requirement? Like, what is the pulse of the people right now? Do people think that, you know, BBM being there won't change my mind, but it's a basic thing that you have to be there? On the first part of the question, if you look at the surveys, Marcos still enjoys mid-50% support nationally, even after the highly publicized non-appearances, the Jessica Soho interview, the CNN debates. So it looks like that the non-appearance is not a deal-breaker with his core support. Uh, but but of course he's still missing out on a key opportunity to answer uh, questions. These programs are still highly rated, so a lot of people still uh, watches the interviews, still watches the debate. So that's really a missed opportunity for him, you know, because a lot of his opposition is saying he has no platform, he has no uh real platform aside from unity and the only way that he's going to effectively challenge that norm is if he regularly shows up to the debates but to the second point of your question whether this is something that the opposition should um, keep hammering about his non-appearance if i were in their campaign team i'd be a little cautious about doing that um especially with uh Vice President Lenny, Senator Ping, Mayor Isco, and Senator Manny. I wouldn't necessarily go about that route of attacking Marcos because he's not appearing because then you also open up yourself to counterattacks from their camp that they also um, did not show up to some of these debates. So even if their core supporters may question you know, regularly, why is Marcos not here? Why is he skipping this debate? Uh, again, is it because he thinks the interviewer or the moderator is biased? Does he not think that the public is worth his time? His, their supporters can always ask uh, those questions, but it would be difficult for them to sell that, for example, in a campaign ad because they also did not appear in some of these uh, debates, particularly with the one in SMNI, you know, because even if their supporters, even if Lenny or his co-supporters, for example, question the legitimacy of SMNI as a network, the strongest supporters of the candidate they need to chip off votes from, they look like they don't have a problem with it. They don't have a problem uh, with SMNI, so it will take a lot of convincing for them to um, change their mind about the non-appearance of their candidate especially when you've seen these posts circulating around social media where you see supporters of marcos raving about the expertise of one of the professors who were in the panel of the smni uh, debate so i would guess that for them if i was in the mind of a marcos supporter i would think that he already showed up to one debate that's it what what more what more are you asking for? So if the second question is, should the opposition, should his opponents hammer on that thought that he isn't uh, always present in debates, I would be very cautious in trying to implement that as a campaign message. Many debates are often skewed towards certain politicians. For example, the SMNI debates are often criticized for having biased moderators, or in the case of Luke Espirito, they were trying to mute his microphone when he was rebutting pro-government bets. So Jessica Soho was accused by BBM for being biased as well. 
Does the perceived biases of the moderator or format affect the way people view debates? I think it does, no? especially with the core supporters of the candidates. If you're a supporter of one candidate and then you think that a certain journalist is asking a gotcha question, of course, they will feel offended and think that this certain reporter is biased. And I think that's because the political culture in general has been really polarized. Um, it's either you love or hate a certain candidate. Um, in the U.S., uh, this has been very common where there is a divide between the liberal media outlets like CNN or MSNBC versus Fox News and Newsmax and OAN, which are perceived to be pro-Trump, pro-Republican uh, news outlets. And if you're a Democrat, you are more likely to watch CNN and NBC. And if you're a Republican, you are more likely to uh, patronize Fox News and Newsmax. So I think you can also make that same assessment here in the Philippines, considering how the core supporters of Marcos' candidates view uh, Lenny Robredo and how core Robredo supporters also view uh, Marcos. And that will also cascade towards these reporters who are perceived to be in favor of one candidate or the other um, because they think that journalists are supposed to be impartial, reporters are supposed to be uh, not, have, not having any bias towards certain candidate or against another candidate. So there could be an effect uh if you are a real core supporter of a certain candidate especially with the dynamic that certain candidates are choosing not to show up to certain debate uh, programs because of the perceived bias of the network or of the hosts it really will amplify the perceived biases and it will also affect the way that the supporters of certain candidates will view these people and view the networks hosting uh, the debates. With that said, I'm not a believer in forum shopping by these candidates. You know, uh, I think the most difficult questions will really come from your harshest critics, and y y it's your duty as your as a presidential candidate or as a vice presidential candidate to answer those questions because I think you're going to be the president for everyone. You're not going to be the president of the people who elected you. You're going to be the president. You're going to be the vice president of an entire country. So if you're just going to evade the questions of one person because you think they're biased, or if you're going to avoid a certain debate because you think that um, the network's heads are already supporting another candidate, I think is understandable if the campaign managers are trying to be risk averse they don't want uh, to have their candidates be pushed into a corner by a question that would be perceived as a gotcha question for them but at the same time i think these candidates really have the responsibility to show up to these uh, networks to show up to these journalists who are known to ask difficult questions because um, it's their job naman eh. as the journalist, as the reporter, it's their job to ask the difficult questions. And if you don't like uh, that question, or if you think that it's a question that would negatively affect your poll numbers, then the debate is the perfect opportunity for you to set an end <laughs> to those issues once and for all. If you want those issues to die down, give a very compelling answer to the question you know your campaign strategy team will help you in answering those questions and crafting an appropriate uh, response so in today's political culture what is the line between just good journalism and a gotcha question because surely they can't think i mean people can't be thinking that you know if my candidate can't answer well then it has to be a gotcha like it feels like that's how people are thinking right now but surely not everyone thinks that way and if the truth is there is no line because we're just that polarized then is there any hope <laughs> like 
is this the future of political discourse uh, where people just should answer questions that they like and anything else is automatically biased, it's automatically a gotcha question. Um, can we change that future if that is the case? You know, I remember during NDC 2016, during that time and during that entire semester actually, one of the buzzwords debaters would always use is post-truth, that we are in a post-truth world that a lot of the decision calculus of people is hinged on emotional standards rather than statements of fact. So we've come a long way since 2016. It's been six years. Um, though I still think a lot of the paradigm of post-truth still holds true today. Um, I think that's because the stakes in this election are really high for both uh, pro or anti-certain candidate that it really contributes to the polarization of the political culture, especially with this election. I would even argue that the polarization in this election is much, much higher than in 2016 because I think people recognize that the stakes in this election may be higher. And that's why I think the challenge for journalists is not to irritate or earn the ire of the public or of certain segments uh, of the public of their uh, audience because they need they need their programs to rate they need uh, their programs to rate so that they can earn advertising uh, money for the network so there is a really 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 thin line because if you ask a certain question half or a sizable number of people will think that you're biased towards one candidate but if you don't ask the question another segment another uh, segment of the population will think that you're not being hard enough or that you're not being uh, investigative uh, enough uh, that you're being too soft on questions so that's a big big challenge for journalists uh, today and if this is the future of political discourse you know what i don't know if we're going to eventually come out of the post-truth era um it's too early uh, to tell but that will come from a lot of factors probably through the regulation of social media uh and you know setting up standards about what kind of information can be published as quote-unquote uh, news stories. But that's a very, very different conversation. That's, that's an entire separate episode of the podcast. Um, but for me personally, I don't know yet if we're gonna come out of a post-truth um, era. And what will make us come out of post-truth is really gonna come from a lot of factors, gonna come from a lot of efforts, from a lot of sectors in society, not only in politics, but also in tech, the world of media, and so on and so forth. Debates are sometimes seen to be a limited platform because candidates of often don't have time to expound on their ideas. Maraming yes or no questions, and they do it like it's fast talk, word associations, and different types of portions. Well, like, well, what's the point of all those things? Yeah, I agree. I think a minute and a half uh, discussion about what you're going to do for a post-COVID economic recovery is not really enough uh, time for you to lay out because there's a lot of things that you have to do, a lot of agencies that you need to um, make sure is doing their jobs correctly. So you can't really lay out that kind of complicated economic package in a minute and 30 seconds. So that's not really going to lay out each candidate's platforms effectively. And I think a lot of it is because there's a lot of candidates and there's a lot of issues that you can or that you have to fit in in a three-hour debate uh, so that's why you have the fast talk the word association portions because media networks are trying to um, fit in as many topics as possible into that one debate so i think a solution to that is to have more than one debate and lay out that certain topics will be talked about in debate one two uh, and three so with that uh, the candidates will have um, enough time 
to lay out their platforms, enough time to rebut each other, and enough time to make their case really because I don't think that a minute and 30 seconds really is enough per candidate to lay out complicated uh, policy choices that they want to make uh, if they were elected president. So I think the fast talk portions, the word association portions, they're trying to be effective. They could be effective for a 30 second um, soundbite if they want to have a soundbite or if they're, they want to have a easy way to digest what these candidates think about certain issues. But we're doing the public a disservice. If we're not gonna let them explain why, like, um, like why are you not for um, higher taxes for the wealthy, for example, or why are you in favor of same-sex marriage or in favor of divorce? You know, um, we need them to explain. It would be better if they would explain their policies, their philosophies behind why they're taking such stances, instead of just saying, "I am not in favor of divorce" or "I am not in favor of a wealth tax." So um, I think we need more than a minute and 30 seconds. And we can do away with the fast talk and the thumbs up or thumbs down portions and the whiteboard portions. Because I think um, while it can be good for a snapshot or good for certain sound bites to go viral, it's not really going to be effective if you want to really lay out what you want to do for the next six years. You can't really make that kind of explanation in a minute and 30 seconds. Having more than one debate is actually a good idea. Why don't they have something like this then? Do they think, and by they I mean the organizers, the studios, the radio stations, etc. Why do they not have these series? Do they think that it's risky, like less people are going to watch the Econ or IR rounds, which by the way, are both going to happen tomorrow in Debatable Open 2022. Both of these things are on day one. So if you're the kind of person who actually likes watching Econ and IR rounds, and I'm sure there are a lot, myself included, drop by the tournament server. So anyway, back to the question. Do these stations or these studios believe that it's risky, like less people are going to watch it? And that's the reason why they don't have these debate series. Because Comelec has the Pilipinas debates and it is a series, but it's not a very long series. It's only um, two vice presidential debates and three presidential debates. But your proposal is that we have series of debates and each debate focuses on like certain topics, certain rounds, for example, and then it gets a little bit more in-depth. So why don't they have something like this already? Actually, there's apparently going to be three presidential debates and two vice presidential debates that are um, set by the Comelec. So they're going to be scheduled between March and April. Uh, I know the first set of debates will be hosted by CNN Philippines again. And this is definitely a step in the right direction. But what I also like to emphasize is that one presidential debate and one vice presidential debate will be in a town hall for format. And I would like to know what the setup of that town hall will be. Because in the US, the setup of town hall debates is that the network will get uh, an audience uh, composed of undecided voters. And they're the ones who will be asking most uh, of the questions. So. Um, it's uh, the debate that I am actually most looking forward to because that's when you see how each candidate will really interact with actual voters. If that's the format that the Comelect will implement. I know there are certain limitations such as with the pandemic, you know, you can't have uh, an audience in a tight-knit uh, small studio. So I don't know how the Comelect will go about that. But it will be refreshing as well to hear what kind of questions the, the general public will field for the candidates because a lot of the interviews, a lot of the debates, those were um, formulated by producers and um, of course passed through a lot of editors and the moderators uh, themselves. So it will be nice to see if whether we'll hear from the general public and ask uh, those questions to the candidates. So the Comelec debates have topics being given in advance. This was requested by BBM and Comelec complied with his wishes. Although the caveat here is that BBM seemed to want the specific questions to be asked, while Comelec ended up giving them a general list of topics to be discussed. 
BBM, I want to emphasize, is not going to attend even if Comelec adjusted to his request already. But anyway, does that adjustment in any way diminish the value or legitimacy of the debate? Yeah, I, I haven't heard of a debate either here in the Philippines or in the US or in another country where topics were being laid out in advance. I could be wrong um, because I'm not really privy to uh, every country's debate uh, process for national position. So, um, but for the debates that I know, the Philippines and in the US, um, this is very novel of an idea uh, for me to hear. And I think it's also important to note that Comelec-sponsored presidential debates is a novelty. No, There hasn't been a Comelec-sponsored presidential debate since 1992. So from 1998, 2004, and 2010, there were no Comelec-sponsored debates. Media outfits would sponsor debates, schools would host presidential forums, but the Comelec didn't really step in and set up a standardized uh, presidential debate format. That really did not happen again until 2016. So I think the COMELEC is trying a lot of ideas in the, how presidential debates should happen in the Philippines. I haven't heard, again, uh, any other outfit that has given out debate topics uh, in advance. But if it's at the insistence of a candidate or of a campaign team, I think that is a testament to their debate prep process. Because a debate prep for a presidential candidate, uh, you need to know what kind of topics uh, are likely to show up at the debate. Is it going to be foreign policy because the Russia-Ukraine um, uh, crisis is ongoing? Is it going to be climate change? Is it going to be the tensions in the West Philippine Sea? Is it going to be a COVID recovery? Is it going to be social issues, divorce, same-sex marriage, etc.? There is a lot of topics that can be debated on at a presidential debate. And it's the job of the debate prep team or the communications team of the candidate to lay out which is most likely and at least have the candidate be trained in answering a question about each topic. No? Because um, I think it's already been fair game in the US that debate prep takes weeks in advance. In fact, I think once you clinch the nomination as the Democratic or the Republican nominee, you immediately go to debate prep because you have a lot of issues that you need to run through and you are not going to wait about what the commission presidential debates is going to say what the debates are because number one they don't they are not all the topics or the questions um, in advance and second um, that's already been the tradition that is what the campaign strategy teams are supposed to do that is what their debate rep teams are supposed to do in the philippine context i don't know if it's going to diminish the value of the legitimacy of the debates in any way I personally think, however, that um, it will be more effective if we see what these candidates uh, are going to say without a rehearsed soundbite that they are just going to repeat 30, 40, 50 times in a presidential debate. Because that's going to come back to my idea in the first question, how does a candidate win a debate? If you're just repeating the same word over and over again in the same debate, you're not going to be an effective communicator. Like in the 2000 presidential debate, Al Gore said the word lockbox like 20 times. He said the word lockbox in the context of certain policy priorities that he was going to lay out if he was elected as president. So education, he would put it in a lockbox. Social security, he would put it in a lockbox. The environment, he would put it in a lockbox. So all of Everything that the voters heard was just the word lockbox. So it wasn't really as effective uh, as a, it wasn't really an effective communicator in that regard. And um, these candidates need to be able to answer these questions sort of a little bit extemporaneously and not rehearsed. Uh, it will show. Again, a lot about their character and their ability if they're able to adjust their messaging from th uh, depending on what the ask of the question is. Like there could be a certain nuance of foreign policy question, there could be a certain nuance 
to a divorce uh, question. Because if candidates think or if the COMELEC thinks that is going to help these candidates by knowing the question, the topics being given in advance, I think we're going to hear just a lot of prepared remarks that could have just been a press release and not a minute and 30 second um, time portion in a presidential uh, debate. Your answer about sound bites is quite interesting to me because just earlier you were talking about the importance of message discipline which is, you know, candidates have to always refer back to a core message of their campaign, stuff like that. So what is the difference between message discipline and just being repetitive? I think it's quite easy uh, to make sure that you don't go off message without having to rely on buzzwords and at the same time still secure the soundbite that will get replayed in the nightly news and will go viral on social media because doing so uh, just relying on buzzwords rather will make your responses really sound canned you know I just read an article about the lockbox comment and one of the campaign uh, staff of Al Gore actually said that during rehearsals during debate prep Al Gore never said lockbox more than twice and was only planning to use that term to emphasize that there won't be drastic changes to social security policy, which was a big issue in the US at the time. But he ended up saying it in the debate around 10 times. So that really made him sound really rehearsed. And he got satirized at Saturday Night Live for it. So it really backfired on him. So the challenge is to make sure you tie back whatever you're saying to the message of your campaign without overly relying on buzzwords. So for example, if your core economic message is protecting small business, MSMEs, make sure that your policy choices, you can demonstrate how it can affect positively uh, small business owners or MSME owners and how it can affect uh, people on the individual level. So for example, through job creation, don't just say that I'm going to protect MSMEs 15 times. Uh, You can maintain message discipline and still make an authentic uh, off-the-cuff or extemporaneous response that doesn't really sound rehearsed. And you know what? Uh, Bill Clinton was somebody who was really good at this because in 1992, his, his economic message was to repudiate trickle-down economic philosophy of the past Republican administrations that he believes or his messaging would point that trickle-down is what caused the recession that the U.S. was going through at that time. So in one town hall debate, uh, there was an audience question about the economy. So he got from his personal experience as a governor of a small state, Arkansas, and then demonstrated how the federal government in status quo, which was led by Bush Sr., wasn't doing enough to help state government. He didn't need to say trickle-down economics 20 times, 30 times, but all of his responses on economic issues uh, he made sure to tie it back to the perceived failure of trickle trickle down. So that's how you maintain message discipline, uh, ensure that you are still on track with your core message without having to rely on buzzwords, you know, just saying voodoo, trickle down economics in 20 times. This is just not going to work because, you know, it could signify to some voters that it's an empty phrase. You know, what does that mean? What does the trickle down mean? So f- it's not enough that you just say the buzzword. You also have to demonstrate what the world looks like, you know, under what your the what paradigm you're challenging and what your alternative uh, will present. Another weird thing about our presidential debates here is that there doesn't seem to be much of rebuttals or sagutan. Um, why did these get reduced overall? Yeah, again, no, I think this is a time-constraint issue. Mm, there are nine candidates, well, ten presidential candidates uh, for this election. That's twice as many versus 2016, um, where there were a lot of back and forth. There were even <laughs> attempts to walk out of the debate uh, by certain candidates in 2016, I think that kind of um, back and forth is less likely to happen if the media network or the Comelec is going to insist that the debate has to happen within two and a half or three hours and that all of the questions need to be answered in a minute, 30 seconds or two minutes. 
um, max. So I think that is the main reason why these uh, rebuttals are being reduced. Uh, in the US, the debate takes place also in three hours, but there's only two candidates. So there's really a lot of back and forths, a lot of rebuttals, a lot of moments where you will have to turn off somebody's mic <laughs> because they're eating up the other candidate's time. So that's not really an option if you have eight, nine, ten candidates in the same stage and you still only have uh, three hours to fit in all of the topics that you need to uh, get through. So I think, again, a better strategy would to split the topics into the three different debates that I think the Comlec is planning to do and then give ample time for a question and answer uh, between uh, the candidates because I think that's the only way that these candidates will be able to make their contrast versus other candidates. Like in the CNN debate, uh, that the most talked about portion of that debate, of course, was the back and forth between Caliori de Guzman and Jose Montemayor. And I think that was the only one, the only back and forth that really happened during uh, that debate. We need more of that and the candidates need more of that because that is the only way that they can demarcate what their values are versus other candidates. That's the only way that they can point out that candidate A isn't really um, going to prioritize certain sectors and that only I can uh, properly represent certain sectors as president. So that's the only way that these candidates can really make that kind of explanation. If you, they're only going to lay out their policy prerogatives in a minute and 30 seconds, they're not going to be able to um, respond to what other candidates are saying because it is already not enough time to lay out what you're going to do in a minute and 30 seconds. So you really need these candidates to have additional time to rebut to other candidates because it's not really going to be a debate anymore, right? If there's no back and forth, if there's no rebuttals, if there will be no um, contentions <laughs> between certain candidates, it's just going to be a forum. It's just going to be the Jessica Soho presidential interview done live. And that's not a presidential debate for me. A presidential debate for me is you are able to answer and be critical of your opponent. Uh, policy choices or their policy proposals. That's not going to be um, happening <laughs> if you're going to restrict their ability to do so because you're just trying to fit in as many topics and as many candidates as possible into the same three-hour time slot. You've been hearing that people don't really like it when candidates try to fight each other too much. Negative campaigning daw kasi siya. And weirdly, people were saying that the SMNI debate, um, I think that was the only debate that Bongbong was in. The other ones were just like interviews and stuff. Um, People were saying that the SMNI debate was much better than the debates where the candidates fight each other. So it seems that for a lot of people, they don't really like, you know, um, rebuttals and stuff. Uh, so that's even though the SMNI debate, and I really do hesitate to call it a debate because it was one of the most boring things I've ever seen because people just talk about stuff like it's a, it's a question and answer thing. So do people really think that rebuttals are like negative campaigning? Because from where we sit, we love rebuttals, right? Like we love Luke Espiritu roasting Harry Roque and Larry Gadon, but is it just us? You know, as ex-competitive debaters, well, at least I am an ex-debater. <laughs> I'm really retired already. We see the values uh, in rebutting and engaging with your opponent you know i've been trained and i'm sure this was also emphasized to you when you were still trying out for your debate instances making points of information point of inquiries or emphasizing engagement to the opposing benches case was really important in competitive debate so we see intrinsic value in rebuttals i think that's why we were left wanting more from smni and to a certain extent even the debate in cnn philippines of course there were the uh, exchanges between senator soto and uh, Representative Bello and Caliodi and Montemayor. The difference, of course, is that in political debates, things can get even more heated sometimes. Uh, 
not only between the candidates but also between the supporters of each candidates that's why there will always be people who will look at these exchanges who will look at the exchange between Luke Espiritu and Larry Gadon and think that somebody was being too aggressive or one wasn't pushing back hard enough so even making a rebuttal and engaging with a candidate during a debate is a calculation that candidates campaign teams and strategic advisors will need to make and decide if it's worth it you know i i didn't watch the smni senate debate but that luke espiritu soundbite was all over social media that night so in that regard, the engagement was successful because it introduced Lucas Espiritu to a wider audience outside of those who watched the debate. But that doesn't mean that there were some people who were irked by the response. I was talking with one of our uh, debate friends. I won't mention their name anymore, but I also said the same thing about the Walden Bellio Tito Soto exchange. It might work for a lot of people uh, to hear him going after uh, Senate President Soto and find that exchange effective for Walden Bellio. But there might also be some people who will think, oh, this guy might be a little bit too aggressive towards Tito Soto. And you can't really. Uh, evade that kind of response from people because there will always be people who will find uh, your responsiveness or your engagement a little uh, probably somehow aggressive you know and you can't really take that away from them because some people really don't want their leaders to be combative for example that's not a value that they want to see in their prospective leaders so it's always a risk it's always a calculation that a candidate must always do. Is it worth it for me to engage this uh, candidate or worth it for me to respond to an, an attack from a fellow candidate? Because, you know, it might work, but it can also backfire on you at the end. Now, in your opinion, taking all of that into consideration, especially the fact that debates currently don't do a lot of swaying in terms of undecided voters or converting voters from one candidate to another, do you think debates still matter? Yeah, I think that presidential and vice presidential and even senatorial debate still matter even though as i explained earlier this is some sort of a novel idea in the philippine context because only very recently has then has it been institutionalized uh by the comelec uh, and made formal through their um accreditation of the presidential debate process if you're looking at as as to whether it will be effective in swaying voters from one candidate to another, we will find out in the coming surveys about what the effects that the presidential and vice presidential debates will have. So I think there's going to be surveys again at the end of March and that we will already have a glimpse as to how the March 19 and March 18 debates will have an effect on the uh, voting preference of the Filipino voters. Um, in the U.S., general election debates aren't really that effective uh, in sort of making a candidate win or lose a presidential election. In 2016, they polled uh, voters right after each presidential debate. Hillary won all three presidential debates, and then she still lost uh, in the Electoral College on Election Day. So it's not really set in stone that if you do well in the debates, you're going to go on and win the election. Um, I don't think uh, there were debate performance surveys held in the Philippines after the 2016 debates. Though, I th if I remember correctly, a lot was said about how Grace Poe seemed prepared in the first debate. And then she didn't win on election day. That didn't sustain her lead in the surveys during that time. Uh, she ended third, third place. So it's not really um, guaranteed that if you do well in the debate, you're going to win the election. But that doesn't mean that the debate uh, process does not matter. Because again, um, these candidates still have a responsibility to tell the people what they plan to do as president. And media networks, news organizations, that's why they're called public affairs and current affairs organizations, is because they also have a public duty to inform the public as to what these candidates plan to do 
as president, as vice president, and even as senator. So they matter, but I take that question as separate from do you think that debates are effective in swaying public opinion? I think we need to separate those two questions because I think in Twitter discourse recently, those two questions have been conflated into the same question and I think we need to take them separately. It doesn't mean it's not going to sway certain voters. It doesn't mean that it's not something that matters at all. No, there, there is value in the debates and I think there should be debates moving forward, uh, having uh, Comelec sponsored debates starting in 2016 was the step in the right direction, I think, personally. The last question we wanted to ask is a bit more aspirational. Part of why we wanted these kinds of episodes is so that when people view a bunch of political analysts or a bunch of political analysis, most of them involving a lot of numbers, then our listeners could have a little more power to make sense of it all. I think many people get overwhelmed by graphs and tables and all that, but they really want to learn how to analyze trends and narratives during campaign seasons. So how would you recommend that they start learning? How can we also learn to detect these patterns and make sense of them? Uh, Well, first, since you brought up survey numbers, uh, I think I need to stress that we should not discredit survey results just because we feel like it's not reflective of what's happening uh, outside or on the ground. or what's happening with our social circles because we have to be wary of the fact that we may be inside a big echo chamber and that the mood around your social circle, be it your family, your friends, or your co-workers, may not be really reflective of what's happening outside. You know, when you open the, uh, the gate of your house, it, there might be a different mood. There might be a different perception about certain people running for office or about a certain issue and that's okay um don't deride a survey just because for example uh they only asked 2000 people or that i i would never experienced being asked by any of these survey firms um there is a small there's a really small chance for someone to be asked to fill out a, a survey by these survey companies so it's really a very small chance so it doesn't really mean that because SWS or Pulse Asia hasn't called you up that means that you can already discredit the surveys as fake or misleading so that's one part and if you want to participate in the democratic process and you know, you want to make an informed decision about issues or about an election. Um, my biggest recommendation is to read or watch the news and get your news from multiple uh, news sources. Um, when I was a kid, I really enjoyed reading the news. I really enjoyed uh, watching the news. You know, it was very rewarding activity for me because I, I felt uh, I felt like I needed to uh, keep track of what was happening not only in the country but also abroad and you know with that kind of information that you have you can engage in conversations it doesn't have to be like uh, you joining or volunteering for a campaign and then you know barnstorming door to door in cities or in uh, far-flung provinces you know these are conversations that can happen you know within your friend group or at the dinner table with your family so that's a small step that will do wonders in terms of our shared responsibility to participate in the democratic process and if you want to you know share your opinion about these issues, then, you know, read up with the news, uh, check what experts on the field are saying. So if it's, for example, a foreign policy problem, try to see what foreign policy analysts are uh, looking at certain issues or the hot button problems in global affairs right now. And then there you can 
um, make an informed decision and make an informed commentary about certain topics. And then, you know, after that, if some if people agree with you, then that's great. If they don't agree with you, then that's their right. Everybody has a right to voice out their own opinion and everybody also has a right to respond back uh, whenever they feel like um, they disagree with your sentiment. Because that's how you really uh, maintain political discourse at the end of the day. And you can't really sustain that level of discourse if you're just going to be scared about um, getting pushback about the things that you say or about whether you think people might misconstrue what you're saying and then you're gonna get cancelled or people might go after you so you know just make an informed decision and read up with the news and then make an informed uh, commentary about said issue if you really want to join the political uh, discourse you know whether it be in small circles that you have or maybe online but I'd also want to say this it's okay if you don't want to do it it's okay if y- your online presence is not really just a commentary about all the latest issues it's everyone's personal decision how and when they're going to react on certain uh, news stories, on certain hot-button issues. And that's their right. And that's your right. It's everyone's right, you know, uh, to make that determination when they're going to jump in and make a stand. Um, Because, you know, they might be scared of the pushback that they might receive from people uh, when they voice out their own opinions and that's okay you know uh in a democratic society we also have the ability to hold our peace to uh not comment about anything and everything you know it's not everyone's cup of tea to sort of uh comment on every single news story or every single issue that just pops up or every single trending twitter topic i know it's not everyone's uh cup of tea but if you want to and you uh are yearning to participate in discourse whether uh online or uh engaging in discussions with your family or with your friends in person um then you have the responsibility to make sure that you are providing or you are hinging your beliefs on facts and not on misleading uh, information because then you're just contributing more to the emotionally laden post-truth political paradigm that we're in. All right, Miguel, thank you very much for letting us know your thoughts on this whole issue. A lot of us feel like we're in the fight of our generation. Uh, We just want to know the little ways we can help. And if we can better understand how debates do and don't matter, we can hopefully adjust our strategies accordingly and win this May. And I think a lot of us want to do that. And I think this is a really good first step to that. We should also understand that the conversations that come up during debates leading up to the election should not end at the election. It should not end this May. We should continue fighting abuses of power. We should continue holding public officers accountable for what they say and do. And we should continue learning about what other people are experiencing to empathize with them. Not only so that we can debate better, but also, more importantly, so we can build a better, more inclusive society that we can all be proud of. So that's it for our episode of Debatable. We'll see you this weekend at Debatable Open 2022, and we'll likely see you in the comments section of the Comelec debates as well. Bye!